Take your Bibles, if you would, and head on over to the book of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 25. Anybody perfect in this morning? Where are all my perfect people? Nobody over there? Anybody in the foyer? Okay, one in the foyer, I see that hand. Excellent, all right. <laughs> Perfection, ever elusive, never attained. And this is where we come in our passage this morning. The title of the sermon this morning is Sin. And the issue that we have is just that. It is not something that is external to us. It is something that is us. We are sinners and that is the issue. We are restless. We are always looking for something other than what we have. We are typically ungrateful, discontented. And because of that, sin latches on to God's good gifts and perverts them, as we are going to see. So follow along, if you would, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, as I read them in your hearing this morning. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of God. As we have mentioned contextually, Paul is writing this letter to Christians in Rome. It is predominantly a Gentile crowd, but the Jews are there, having recently come back into the city after being expelled. 
So it is a mix. Paul, as a Jew, is writing to individuals whom he knows, at least culturally he knows how they think. They think a lot like him. Their worldview is informed as his is and was, and so he's writing from what he knows. But as we looked at last week, he's also writing to Gentile Christians who no doubt have been impacted by Judaism. They perhaps were proselytes to Judaism. They knew the synagogue and synagogue worship. They knew the law. They were well-versed in the things that Paul is speaking about. And so a word about the law before we dive into the text. The Jews had taken the law and made it something that it was never intended to be. The Jews had taken the law and in it attempted to find life. And yet the law was intended to show them death the death that was resident within themselves. The Jews looked to the law for salvation. and The law was only ever, ever intended to show them their sinfulness. The Jews looked to the law as a means to sort of uh, see comparatively where they stack up according to other people. And of course, the law was only ever intended to compare to God, the giver of the law, and to show, therefore, in people that they are found wanting. The Jews had misused the law, and oftentimes I find that we do the same. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me from my sin. I will take it from here. And watch me go, and watch how many things I will do for you, and how great I will be in your service. We do this because we want to earn God's grace. We want to do something. We want to see whether we are better at this thing called Christianity than others who claim to be good at it. We want to compare. We also want to pay God back. And Paul has told us in chapter 6, verse 23, that grace is the free gift of God. Eternal life is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's free. It's a gift. It cannot be earned and it cannot be paid back. But this is what we try to do a lot. So Paul is not just writing to people who grew up under the law. He's writing to people who are tempted by the law. Legalism is never far from our hearts. So to illustrate what the law was intended to do, one of the ways to illustrate that is the law was a fence built by God. There before the law it was wide open pasture, but also filled with the thorns and thistles and holes and rocky cliffs and all of the things that come along with that. Paul has alluded to that in chapter 5 where he talks about those that are without the law. There's their sin. Sin is sin, but the law comes in and clarifies and codifies for us what is right and what is wrong. And so in the first place then, sin is the problem and the law codifies and clarifies sin. The law is like a fence. So inside of this pasture, fenced in, this is what is right, and everything outside of that is wrong. Inside of this pasture is that which pleases God, that which reveals his character, that which resonates with who he is, and everything outside of it does not, and leads to destruction and despair and dissatisfaction and discontentment. That which is inside of the fence is good, and that which is outside of the fence is bad. And so notice what he says in verse 7. I would not have known sin apart from the law. I didn't know what it meant you should not covet unless the law had said do not covet. What is interesting is Paul's choice for which one of the Ten Commandments that he highlights. 
In the Decalogue, the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet, is the only command in the Decalogue that on its surface talks about the inner man and not the outward actions. You can sin the sin of covetousness and no one would know, other than God, of course. But it's an internal private sin that you can commit all on your own. It is impossible to commit the other sins in the Decalogue, certainly the last six as it relates to our fellow human beings, by ourselves. Murder, stealing, lying involve other people. But covetousness is that which is in the inner man. And God says to covet is to be dissatisfied with him and what he has provided. So stay inside the fence. We are satisfied with what God has provided. We are content. Go outside of the fence. We are discontented and we covet. And Paul says, the law shows me what that is. So is the law sin? That would be like asking, is the fence the problem? We could get mad at the fence stupid fence, but the fence is not the issue. The fence is good and holy and righteous. It's a gift, but the issue is us and our hearts. And this is where it goes next. Notice verses 8 and 9. Sin uses the law to produce more sin. What does he say in verse 8? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. What happens when we are introduced to restriction? Oh, thank you so much. I was wondering what the right way to go is, and now that you've restricted me, I'm, I'm blessed by that. Thank you so much. No! Restriction? No, 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 that's not how it goes. I'm free. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And more than that, and at a deeper level than that, restriction can, because of our sinful hearts, produce in us dissatisfaction. Hey, what's over that fence? What is out there? What am I missing out on? The grass in here is starting to look a little brown. But boy, the grass on the other side of that fence is looking awful green. Our perspective is revealed because of the fence. In the Garden of Eden, what was God's perspective? You may eat of any of the trees in the garden. What is God's perspective? Abundance. Look at all that you can do. What is Satan's perspective? Hey, what's that about one, the one tree that you can't? What's going on with that tree? Inside the fence was everything except for one thing. <laughs> and what is the perspective that we have? What does sin have? Looking through the fence. What is that tree over there? What's going on? Was God holding out on us? Is, is God restricting us? Is there, is there more that we could have that God's not allowing us to have? And you see the dissatisfaction and the discontentment and the discomfort. Instead of seeing all of the green grass and the running water for sustenance and the care of the shepherd. No, we look, over, we look through the fence. What's out there? We want to see out there. Paul says that's what happens in our hearts. That's what the law, or sin does with the law. It produces in us more sin. It's a military term in the Greek. It's to set up a base of operations. Sin says, okay, law, this is what we're dealing with? All right, we'll set up a base of operations here, and from here, we'll create all kinds of dissatisfaction and discontentment. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. 
John Piper has said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The law is not the issue. The fence is not the problem. The problem is us. We want to go outside of the fence. We want to see what's on the other side. What is God keeping from us? Instead of what is God gloriously and abundantly given to us? We spent all last year going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon lived a lot of his life outside of the fence, and he's here to tell us there's nothing out there good. All that's out there is death and decay and destruction. And yet here we are, 2021, still looking outside of the fence. What then does sin always result in? Leaving the protection of the fence, what does that always result in? Death. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Mark it down. Sin never keeps its promises. Ever. It always overpromises and vastly and grossly underdelivers. Sin makes all kinds of promises. Do this, that'll bring satisfaction. Participate in this. You need more of this. This will be the thing. It never is. And it's insatiable. It always takes, it never gives. God gives. God provides life and life more abundant. He gave us the law not as a means to cramp our style, not as a means to sort of knock us off our groove. God gave us the law as a good gift to say, in these parameters, this is life, this is abundance, this is joy, peace, comfort, contentment, grace, mercy, righteousness, holiness, goodness, compassion, truth, love. This is where it is. And we don't believe it. And we don't trust him. And so we look elsewhere. And we go away from the only one who can give us life. And that always brings death. And so notice verse 12. Sin is the problem, not the law. The law is holy, Paul says. The fence is good. The fence built by God is good. The fence is not the issue. It is our hearts dissatisfied with what God has provided. Restless because they are not finding their rest in him. Sin is always attractive to the degree in our lives that God is not enough. And that is Paul's point. Is the law sin? No. We are sinners. But you take sin and you put it together with law and bad things happen. The law is not the problem. But our sinful hearts say that the law is an issue. We want to have our fun. And so we find this wrestling. Now, note if you would, from 13 to 25, there's a shift. Paul has been using first-person personal pronouns throughout. I, 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 I. But up until verse 12 there in the past tense, and then it shifts in the Greek to the uh, present tense. He's talking about his experience right now. This is the struggle. For those who do not know the fence is there or ignore the fence or have broken down the fence or attempted to and run roughshod over it, they don't care. This isn't a struggle. They're out on the edge of the cliff or at the bottom, bruised and broken, having their time. 
But for those that know the fence is there, for those that love God and want to emulate his character, want to live out who they are in Christ, this is a struggle. Paul is talking about his present experience. Now don't get this wrong. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 are not chronologically distinct. Paul's not saying, this is my early experience, and then I get to chapter 8, and this is like the mature Christian. No, chapter 7 and chapter 8 are simultaneous in Paul's life. Paul knows the truth. He knows who he is in Jesus Christ, but he also knows who he is. And this is our struggle. So he, 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 the reality is, starting in verse 13, he says, we cannot defeat sin on our own. Notice the magnitude of sin in verse 13. This is the key verse in the passage. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. It has been my experience that those that are most spiritually mature hate their sin the most. The closer we get to God the more we realize how far away we still are in terms of our current state. Those that deny sin, downplay sin, deflect sin, and don't deal with sin are not growing closer to God. But the closer we get to him, his magnificence expands as does our sinfulness. Notice the progression in Paul's life as he writes his letters. In some of his early letters, he says he's the least of the apostles. Then later on, he says he's the least of the saints. And in one of his, if not his last letter he ever wrote, he says, I am the chief of sinners. The more we grow in our spiritual walk, the more we grow closer to God, the more we see how sinful we are. There is a lie out there that the gospel of Christianity is that we are better than everybody else. And that's what we think. We look down our noses at everybody and we think that we've got it figured out and nothing could be for the further from the truth. This ought to be the place where you find the most sinners in Charlottetown and beyond every Sunday because we know how sinful we are. We are only here because we have a great Savior in Jesus Christ. And the closer we get to God, the more we realize how deficient we are in light of His perfection, His holiness. To go back to that idea of perfection, perhaps you're here this morning and you're struggling because everybody else's Facebook feed looks better than yours. Perhaps you're struggling because you believe as you sit here this morning that everybody else sitting here this morning is doing better at this Christian thing that you are. And if they knew really what was going on in your heart and life, if they knew really what was happening, they would shun you. Perhaps you've bought into the lie that Satan has been whispering in your ear, you're the only one struggling with this. And if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't be struggling with this. And nothing could be further from the truth. We are all strugglers with sin who have only hope in Jesus Christ the righteous. And the more that we get closer to God and his commandments, the more sinful sin becomes. The more we hate the sin in our lives. Reading right now, autobiography by John Bunyan, got grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Fascinating work as John, uh, the writer of The Pilgrim's Progress, recounts his own conversion experience. And the closer he got to God, the more of a wretch he knew himself to be. That is the reality, or ought to be the reality for us. 
So do not underestimate the magnitude of sin. To the degree that you believe that sin is not a problem, to that degree you are not as close to God and his magnificent perfection as you ought to be. So notice in the second place then this frustration in verses 14 through 20. We're not going to reread those. If you ever want to challenge, try to memorize these verses. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. It's back and forth. It's, it, 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 Paul's, it's, a, it's a deep struggle. There's a great frustration here. And I've used this illustration in some classes that we've held here at Grace, and I use it again. If you get a chance, graph Peter's life. On the left-hand side, high spiritual experience, okay spiritual experience, kind of the middle, then a low spiritual experience and the lowest spiritual experience, and then graph his life. Matthew 16, what does Peter say? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. My father revealed that to you. High spiritual experience. Can't get any higher. The creator has given you revelation. You can't get a higher spiritual experience than that. Seven verses later, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Can't be lower than that on the spiritual experience graph. And what does he say to Jesus? Jesus, I'll die for you. No, Peter, before the sun rises, you will deny you even know me three times. Peter, Acts 10, rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Peter, what I've called clean, do not call unclean. Rise, kill and eat. Goes to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. And then in Galatians, what does Paul say? It's like the high school cafeteria. Peter's eating with the nerds, and then the jocks come into the cafeteria, and he leaves the nerd table and goes eats with the jocks. He, he was with the Gentiles. Judaizers come up from Jerusalem, and all of a sudden he leaves off and says, nope, I'm with the Judaizers. And Paul says, what are you doing? You're denying the gospel. Peter is like an ECG graph. He's all over the map, but what's his trajectory? It's towards Christ-likeness. If you're here this morning and you're struggling, you're in good company. But where are you moving towards? Are you getting closer to God through Christ by the Spirit or farther away? Paul says, it is, is it a struggle? Yes, but the struggle is the point in some ways. If I didn't care, if I wasn't being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, there wouldn't be a struggle. But there is a struggle because I love God and I know that he loves me. Therefore, I hate certain things. I love others and I don't always do what I should and think the way that I should and act the way that I should. And this is the frustration. And lastly, in that place, we see the seeming hopelessness of it. What does he say? I find there to be a law, not the law of Moses, because in verse 23, he says another law. So he can't be talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking here about a principle, a general truth. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I know what is right. I know what it is inside the fence. I know the abundance of God in there. I know that that is actually where freedom is, inside the fence, not outside. I know that what's in here is better than what's on the outside. I know that. But every time I want to do right, what's right there? Sin, dissatisfaction, restlessness, pushing back against restriction, the old way right there. He says, in my inner being, I delight in the law of God, but there's another law, another principle waging war in my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul's talking about the in-between. We are righteous in Jesus Christ. Justification happened at the point of conversion 
and it is true of us, then we are being made righteous practically in the in-between, the messy middle, the process of sanctification to being, being set apart. And that's the process that Paul's talking about here. But the hope is, as he'll talk about in chapter 8, one day we will be glorified. We, are, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day, thanks be to God, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. Which leads us to the third place. Only Jesus can defeat sin. You can see this building in Paul. What does he say in verse 24? Wretch that I am, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I know who I am in Christ, and I know who I one day will be in Christ, but who I am right now doesn't look like it should. And it's a struggle. Where is our hope then? The cry of victory in verse 25a. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the hope. That is our only hope. We do not have it in us to be holy and righteous. But thanks be to God, we have a substitute. We have a representative who is holy on our behalf. And he is our only hope. And so notice what it says in verse 25b, the summary of the reality. So he says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The law is not the problem. But I find myself in the middle of the pasture, and there's moments of days where I graze in the grass and drink from the cool stream, and I am thankful to the shepherd for his provision, and I am glorifying in him, and I am resting in him. And then there are moments in days where all I want to do is get outside that fence. It looks way better out there, and there's way much more fun out there and more satisfaction out there, and I am restless because I need to find my rest in you, God. And the only hope I have is not in myself. My only hope is Jesus Christ, the righteous. The struggle is real, as they say, but the hope is just as real. And the power of Jesus Christ is just as real. What is our response then this morning? Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the only hope that we have. Do not look to the law. The fence is a gift from God, but the fence cannot save us. The only Savior that can save us is Jesus Christ the righteous, our representative who took on flesh, bore the penalty of sin and death, defeated sin and death, and now is our Lord and Savior if we are in him, which we are about to celebrate in just a few moments. So Grace Baptist Church, it is not that we have arrived, we have not. But it is also not that it is hopeless. There is hope, and the hope is only found in Christ. And then Paul is going to go into this in what is perhaps the greatest chapter in this letter. And it is not hyperbolic to say that perhaps the greatest chapter in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. But we need the first seven before we get here. <laughs> Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning as we then come to the table together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, how powerful it is as we have sung, and Father, how true it is. Thank you that it clarifies for us what is true and good and holy and righteous. Father, there are so many things vying for our attention. 
calling to us, this is what will satisfy. This is what is good. And unless it is in accordance with you, your character, your word, and your revealed word through your son, Father, it is not good. Our society is preaching utopia and offering death. Only in you is there hope. Father, which is never to say that we believe we have arrived, we have somehow figured it out, we are better than everyone else. Oh, no, Father. We of all people know just how sinful we are. How sinful we were and how sinful we still are. Our only hope is in you. Keep us from comparison. Keep us from self-righteousness. Father, keep us clinging to Jesus. He is our only hope. Thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf as we move now to celebrate it and commemorate it this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.